All rise and welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast, where we'll enter final judgment on all the top sports law controversies of the day and where opinions are never subject to appellate review. I'm your host, Daniel Wallach, legal analyst for The Athletic and the founder of Wallach Legal LLC, the country's first sports wagering focused law firm. On today's docket, sports litigator and bioethics legal expert Alan Milstein talks about the impact of the coronavirus on sports and the decision that every league will soon face on whether and when to resume their games, plus unique insights on new Knicks team president Leon Rose from the man who was his law partner for many years. Coming up next on Conduct Detrimental. Welcome to the fourth episode of the reboot of Conduct Detrimental with Daniel Wallach. Previously, it was a uh, co-hosted podcast with Daniel Wallach and Daniel Worley. uh, But, you know, for the last four episodes and for, I guess, time immemorial, it's going to be Daniel Wallach talking about the intersection of legal issues and sports. Uh, Joining me during this introduction is the man without whom this rebooted podcast would not be possible uh, because I am technically not savvy. I don't know how things work in the production side of the podcasting universe. So I actually had to go out and put out a, an advertisement, unpaid advertisement on Twitter, looking for a, a producer of this podcast. And I found somebody who has been the sort of the linchpin to this podcast. His name is Robert Schmitz. He has his own podcast addressing you know, Chicago Bears football-related issues. Robert, welcome. And, and I hope you stay with Conduct Detrimental uh, until the end of time. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for bailing me out and making all this possible. God, you're too kind, Daniel. It's exciting to be actually on the front face of the podcast because I know I have heard you talk not only on our phone calls and any other conversation about the podcast, but every single time I listen to the interviews, go back through it, the editing world is something else. But it's cool to be on this side of the podcast, especially in such a wild time like this uh let's just call it an unusual style of living where we're all so cooped up. How's it been where you are in Florida? Uh, Well, there is a direct correlation between the impacts of the coronavirus and my decision to relaunch a podcast. Uh, (laughs) I had had attempted an episode uh, back in December. I don't think it went that great. I mean, it it was a decent interview, but because of all the work that I had in my law practice. I didn't have any time uh, to devote to podcasting. Well, I still have work, but obviously some of it uh, is relating to sports gambling and with sports gambling tapering off a lot. Well, my practice hasn't tapered off a lot, but it's tapered off just a little to give me an opening uh, to focus on you know, relaunching this podcast. So if I was ever going to get into the into the routine and the method of uh, regularly podcasting this proved to be like the perfect time in our you know in our in our lives when we're forced to remain at home and um, you know 
fill our days with maybe some things we didn't have enough time for, like reading books, talking to our significant others, <laughs> starting a family maybe. I'm, I'm going to try to work on that one, but podcasting is something that was inevitable and the, the you know the launch or not or, or is just the stay at home and self-quarantining has given me uh, a lot of time to start thinking about episodes and uh, scripting you know topics and uh, I'm so glad that at least I'm, I'm able to make some productive use of my time uh, when I'm not working and and this has been so much fun I've touched I, I think I've struck a nerve within the NFL community and I found a a real calling you know pretty much in focusing at least for the time being on on the new collective bargaining agreement. Uh, we've done a few episodes on that, on Russell Okung, and then uh, I had the great Andrew Brandt uh, on a one-on-one -on -one interview, which was fantastic. I'm not giving up the CBA just yet. We've got a couple of major episodes coming up in the foreseeable future. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping within the next week to focus an episode or two solely on the disability benefits quagmire under the NFL's disability plan. Uh, that's gonna be a fantastic episode, but it's gonna take a little bit of work uh, getting everything up and running, doing my research and finding an appropriate guest. So that's on pause, but I would expect we'll turn to, we'll finish up with the CBA with a few additional episodes. But today's episode will focus on the coronavirus's impact on sports. And uh, while the coronavirus has given me a lot of free time to podcast, uh, there are other folks who have a lot of free time, namely professional sports athletes, uh, teams, leagues, venues. The industry has gone dark. And uh, with talk of the, uh, you know, the curve bending and the, you know, the peak being being hit in certain cities, I think the talk of an economic recovery and using sports uh, to, to basically to act as a as a as a metaphor for the reopening of of, of our society, I, I think is now looming in the background, and we're going to get into some of those issues as to whether sports should resume, when should it resume, what are some of the ethical and legal issues associated with that, and for that we bring in. Uh, probably the only person in the United States that is both a sports law expert and a bioethics expert. And his name is Alan Milstein, who's a lawyer by training, and he runs the, uh, he's the chair of the litigation department at a firm called Sherman and Silverstein in New Jersey. He's, he's well known in the sports industry for having represented Maurice Claret, the, the former uh, Ohio State running back. Alan and Maurice challenged uh, the NFL, the NFL's age restriction uh, for the draft back in 2004. And Alan also has worked very closely on a number of other sports legal issues throughout his career. So we're going to talk to him about um, the coronavirus and when it's safe to potentially resume sports and what are some of the legal issues uh, surrounding that. I think that sounds awesome. I mean, I can't wait to hear it, certainly, especially given the work that you've already done with Andrew Brandt's interview and the Russell Okung interview that you conducted. I think that you've hit the ground running, to say the least. And that's really awesome to see because I know as somebody who follows sports, I mean, I like to think I follow them pretty intensely. Uh, things like gambling law, 
yeah. and the CBA. They're not things that I even really understand. I'd love to pretend like I do, but I'm more than willing to admit that I heard people like Sam Acho talking about how it was a great deal for the lower level players. I heard so much conflicting information about the CBA that when I saw people like Kenny Stills, Aaron Rodgers, JJ Watt saying, yes, I, or I don't like this deal. They were saying no, as a matter of fact, but then I saw other lower level players. Like I doubt you've even heard of him. The bears backup defensive lineman that just resigned with a different team. Nick Williams was saying, I vote yes. And so on and so forth. It kind of looked like it was better for the rest than it was the star players. And that made sense in a paradigm like yeah. America. Well, but well don't, having- don't, well, Robert, don't believe the hype. I think it's not just the star players. This deal caters exactly. uh, not just to the middle class and to those at the bottom of the roster, but also uh, to so many asp- aspiring NFL roster players who may not be currently under contract with a team or are on a roster. One of the one of the dirty little secrets about the National Football League Players Association Constitution is that the voting eligibility uh, for ratification of a CBA is pretty much anybody who is paying dues and is actively seeking employment as a professional football player. So you have three categories of folks. You have those who are on a roster. Obviously, they're going to be able to vote on the CBA. Then the second category are those who are maybe under contract uh, with an NFL team. I don't know. Maybe they're on, on IR. They're on the practice squad. Uh, obviously, those two camps should be able to vote on the CBA ratification. There's no mm-hmm. question about that. But there's an ambiguity in the NFLPA constitution, which um, it, there's an open question as to whether those who are actively seeking employment but aren't on a team and aren't under contract, whether those folks can vote. My interpretation of the CBA is that they cannot render a vote. Simply being a dues-paying member and and working out in the hopes that you're going to be on a roster shouldn't be enough to vote on something that affects the rights of so many players that are actually on rosters. And the NFLPA's constitution makes clear that those on a roster and those under contract are deemed active members. Active members can vote on a CBA. But then there's another sentence in the same provision which says that those actively seeking employment can become members, but it doesn't specify what type of member. And in the NFL, you have in the NFLPA, you have different categories of membership. You have active members, you have former players, and I think there are associate members. And I believe. Listen, we're gonna. We won't know until we get the vote counts and we we peer on the inside of how the NFLPA's voting process works. But I'd be willing to bet that a significant number of the yes votes came from the camp of players that are actively seeking employment but aren't on teams. And if you were to eliminate those players from the voting process and only focus on those on actual rosters, I think the CBA gets voted down. You know, uh, overwhelm uh, if not overwhelmingly, but but almost certainly, uh, there wouldn't be enough votes to pass it. So those that pushed it over the line are, you know, a category of players that I question whether they even have the right to vote based upon the language in the NFLPA's constitution. And and if there's any member of the of the NFLPA executive council executive committee member, someone who doesn't like the deal. I think that might be a point of entry for potentially challenging it. 
Certainly, it'll be interesting. I mean, that would be wild. Not to mention the deal's terms are so long. 11 years is a long time. And considering how short a margin it is, if you can't tell, I'm basically quoting Andrew Brandt right here. It's it's a little weird to feel this deal crawl through the cracks and now it's approved. Yes, I understand that something like this can be improved by a simple majority, but in senatorial terms, this seems like something that would need a two-thirds majority instead of the slim margin of yeses and noes it had. It was just a... a little over 100 votes that approved it right no it's only 50 it was only 50 votes oh, and you, you mentioned you mentioned two-thirds that's the supermajority requirement well that's not what the nflpa's constitution requires every trade association or union can make their own rules and in their infinite wisdom the nflpa uh and and the membership decided that a majority vote would be sufficient to ratify a cba but there are other voting thresholds that matter and that arguably were not met before a vote can even be passed before the CBA can be presented to the membership. It has to be approved by uh, uh, the, the board of uh, I, I think there's a board of representatives who are the team, you know, the player reps. There's an executive committee. And, and this is the only CBA, I think, in labor history that was that that was presented to a membership, even though it had been rejected by the executive committee. And the board of representatives, the second level of gatekeeper, di- didn't see fit to even recommend it for approval. So it arrived, uh, it, ar- it arrived to the membership under this gigantic, all caps, all bold question mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really, it, it, on a going forward basis, this kind of membership, this kind of vote, this kind of CBA that was enacted uh, controversially and under a cloud that will last for the next eleven years. I think we haven't seen the full enormity of the recriminations and the repercussions that are going to arise from this. These are not the conditions under which a deal should be passed. And then you add the coronavirus uh, timing to this. This vote took place during the first week of all of the, you know, sort of the the, the precautionary measures being taken, the the state governmental orders. Uh, There was a lot of criticism about why 500 people didn't vote. Uh, I would argue that there were other there were other priorities. And if not priorities, there were other important things going on in people's lives that, uh, you know, that that took time away from the consideration of something that is almost 500 pages in length. You're asking you're asking players uh, to review a 500-page CBA, I think it's unrealistic to expect anybody, even a lawyer, to read all 500 pages. Uh, but I just don't think there was enough time. Uh, it was rushed through, and then when you add the timing of the coronavirus, uh, you know, you know, precautions. I don't see any good reason why the vote couldn't have been delayed a week, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, there was no rush, other than that the NFLPA's. Uh, staff leadership wanted to ram this through the membership. Right. That's certainly how it reads to me. It read like a group that wanted to take an 11 year deal in the long term just so that they could get on with free agency, or at least at somebody at the ground level like me. That's kind of how it came across. But you mentioned coronavirus. I don't think that that could be a better lead in to your interview today. How about you ring it in? Absolutely. So uh, just a couple of quick things about the coronavirus. We're talking right now, our, our, our podcast is being recorded at a time when the state of Florida, which is my home state, 
has basically opened up the uh, the path for professional sports to resume. Um, you know, whenever the various leagues want to get around to it, Governor DeSantis issued an executive order uh, uh, late last week that declared professional sports to be an essential business during these times. And clearly, uh, the writing is on the wall that the governor wants to send out a, a, a welcome wagon to every professional sports league that is considering the resumption of their season to come to Florida and stage all these events in empty stadiums. The NHL, Major League Baseball, uh, the NFL, the NBA. You need an arena. You need a little league field. You need a CYO gym. You need a venue. Florida has at least 65 professional sports venues. And then given all of the spring training facilities, uh, you know, in, in West Palm Beach and in the, the West Coast of the state, our state is tailor made to basically host the equivalent of an Olympics on steroids, which is basically all four leagues setting up camp here over a you know one to two month period to run out their seasons and then have a playoff style tournament. So this is a really fascinating time, and uh, you know the coronavirus obviously is the most important story in sports. So without further ado, uh, we'll we'll you know turn to our interview with Alan Milstein, and I promise all of the NFL. NFL fans out there, uh, former players, wives of former players, our next episode after this will be a uh, sort of a, a war and peace, uh, the ultimate episode on the Forgotten 400 and the NFL's disability quagmire. Our next guest is Alan Milstein, a uh, well-known sports lawyer who's the uh, chair of the litigation department of Sherman and Silverstein. And he has a very unique uh, skill set. Uh, we all knew he was a sports law expert, but in addition to sports law, he's a nationally renowned expert in bioethics, which I guess makes you the perfect guest for these times. You're definitely a man for these times. So uh, can you tell me, Alan, by the way, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. My pleasure. Okay. Can you tell me what role ethics, whether it be bioethics or medical ethics or health ethics, should play in the decisions around whether to resume sports? Whether to resume sports during a pandemic. I mean, it is a bioethics decision. And bioethics essentially are the rules by which... Uh, life and death decisions, medical decisions are made. So with respect to the pandemic, the obvious question is with respect to sports, at what point do we say it's okay to go back and, and play these games in front of uh, crowds or even without, you know, just exposing the players? You know, do, when you weigh the risks is it worth it for the entertainment value? And it's going to be a pretty high burden to either go back before a crowd for sure, but even to have the players themselves face each other in this, uh, in this pandemic. Well, who gets to make that decision? It sounds like the, this is really a combination of leagues, you know, governing bodies, as well as like state, and local governmental agencies. So uh, who, who makes this call ultimately? 
Well, I mean, state and local governments can approve the going back. Leagues can also then to choose whether or not to go back. But ultimately, and this has to do with with, with the you know, the error that the president was making yesterday. Ultimately, it's a decision, really, for all of us. It, you know, it's a decision for the players. You know, whether it's whether they want to go back and, and risk essentially exposing themselves and their families. And it's up to each of us as fans, whether it's worth going back and sitting next to one another in these crowded arenas. I mean, at what point, you know, you know, the president's talking about May 1st. I mean, can you imagine going into a 30,000 uh, seat arena and sitting there to watch a basketball game? It would be absolute foolishness. So ultimately, you know, if you start at the government level, you take it all the way down to the fan level as to as to the choices. Okay, do you think it's realistic for uh, the sports industry to bring their games back uh, at, at some point this year? Even you know, even in a best case scenario. Uh, where things, you know, the, the situation improves radically over the next, you know, month or two. Uh, at what point do you think it should be the right time for, you know, professional sports to come back? I mean, I, th I think the notion of fans in the arena are pretty much out the window for the rest of 2020. But how soon do you think we'll see the games come back? I don't think we'll see the games come back without fans. I mean, you might see the Masters come back. I don't think you need necessarily fans for the golfers. Uh, you know, the, although an individual golfer may, you know, mm -hmm. professional golfer may dispute that. He may still say, you know, we're, we're a uh, fan-dominated sport like every other sport. You mm -hmm. know, maybe you'll see NASCAR without the fans. Uh, you know, the drivers certainly would be, would be safe running around that track in their cars, they're not going to be exposed. You know, maybe the pit crew would have trouble. Uh, I think the leagues are going to be very, very cautious, more cautious, certainly than the president, more cautious than the governors and the mayors, uh, particularly with respect to the NBA. I think you'll, you won't see those games come back until essentially everyone can be assured that going to the games is safe. Is there any circumstance under which, uh, in your view, what, what are the legal risks here for the leagues and, and for the teams if they move forward? Is, is this just simply uh, you know, a health decision? But once they make the decision to move forward with the games, uh, where could there be potential pitfalls for liability? I, mean, I don't think, you know, if they open it up and 30,000 fans come in and one person in the stands has it, and mm -hmm. a thousand end up contracting it. Can the thousand sue the arena? I don't think so. Can the thousand sue the one fan who gave it to them? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's an individual. It's, and that's why I said it, it's an individual decision whether to to attend those games before no. it's safe to do so. Is it really an assumption of the risk? Are you assuming the risk of becoming infected? with the coronavirus by attending a sporting event? Is, is that something that public policy would, uh, would, would uphold as a, as a viable assumed risk? 
I mean, you can get the flu by attending a basketball game. You can get a cold by attending a, a basketball game. You can get a stomach virus by attending a basketball I mean, People infect one another all the time. But, the, but, you know, we don't allow them to sue unless there's some kind of intentional infection. Uh, but, but, again, I'm not worried about that because the leagues are going to be extremely careful before opening this thing up. You know, I've said that before. The, the leagues will be behind. You know, they will not be in front of the mayors and the governors and the presidents. They'll be behind them. And it, it, the, things won't open up until it is safe for everyone to participate. Okay. Well, how about uh, other events like the NFL draft? I mean, we've been, we've been talking about the possibility of resuming sports seasons down the road. But uh, do you think that's a wise or unwise decision? putting aside the logistics of it? I think they got to do it remotely, and I think it's easy to do it remotely. The teams can Zoom, all the coaches can Zoom, and they can Zoom with the league, and they can Zoom with the potential players and draftees. So there's nothing wrong with holding a draft because uh, you, you don't have to violate the safe distance rule. Okay, but I guess it puts an end to draft parties. You know, when they, when they zoom in, speaking of zooming in, they show the uh, player who's about to be drafted and you, and you hear like 20 people, uh, you know, hi, Mr. You know, Johnson, you know, this is coach so-and-so, uh, we're going to draft you. And then you hear the cheers in the background. Uh, there'll be none of that? None of that. I know, I know my friend Leon used to love to sit next to his players when they were called up. Uh, and it was exciting to watch him you know, walk up, you know, hug the players. And it's a big day, but, you know, what's worse? You know, how about the high school students who can't graduate when a graduation ceremony, can't go to the senior prom this year? I mean, that's worse, I think. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, speaking yeah, of Leon Rowe, yeah, go, go I can't go to my I can't go to my grand in Vancouver. I think that's worse than uh, not, not being with your player when they get called for the draft. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And now let's talk about Leon Rose for a moment. I mean, this episode was, I guess, going to focus mainly on uh, how the coronavirus is impacting uh, the sports industry. But you occupy a very unique um, you know, role within the sports industry in that you have represented throughout the course of your career a number of professional football players, professional basketball players. You sued the NFL on behalf of Maurice Claret, but in your position as a shareholder and partner at Sherman Silverstein, you also uh, were partners uh, with the current new New York Knicks president, Leon Rose, uh, who has kept a very low profile since taking the, the job you know, less than a month ago. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what Leon is like as a person and as a professional? Shed some light on what Nick fans and, and basketball fans can expect from Leon Rose in his position as team president. <laughs> to know Leon, to, to understand Leon Rose, you have to know his father. So my, the name of my firm is Sherman Silverstein, Cole, Rose, and Podolsky, and the Rose is Leon's father. Uh, he, he's the kind of lawyer that uh, when people, it was a real estate lawyer, transactional lawyer, it's the kind of lawyer that when people are on the other side of a transaction and he's the other side's lawyer, 
the next deal they hire Zev, Leon's father. You know, he's a man, <laughs> he's, he's a man of integrity and uh, social conscience and uh, extremely charitable to his time, both in, uh, with public and private institutions and with young lawyers. So I always say that Leon's, Leon's goal in life is to have the reputation of his father. And that is a laudable goal. So when, whatever you think of the average sports agent, uh, Leon is somebody who, who prides himself on his integrity. So that's, that's you know, I, I, Leon and I have been together for a number of years, probably 20 years practicing law. And uh, traveled, we traveled the world together in uh, lawsuits around the the world, literally around the world. Uh, you've been around the game for a long time. You're an observer. You're probably a big fan of the 76ers. Based on what you know about Leon, how confident should Knicks fans be that, you know, Leon is going to turn this mess around? Is Leon Rose the man to return the Knicks to respectability? And if so, why? <laughs> if anybody is Leon and the people that Leon knows is the guy now there's only there's only one place up there's only one place to go for the knicks and that's up <laughs> uh, yeah but alan i'm 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 57 years yeah i'm 57 years old i haven't seen an nba title in new york since 1973 that's 47 years ago willis reed walt frazier jerry lucas earl monroe i barely remember that and Ever since then, the Knicks have been a model of mediocrity. I mean, you're from Philadelphia. You remember when the Knicks tried to sign George McGinnis, who was the property of the Philadelphia 76ers, and the, and the NBA docked the Knicks a number one draft choice. And it's, just, it's been like that year after year after year, with a few you know, limited exceptions, you know, when the Knicks won the lottery for Patrick Ewing. But we're, we've been, the Knicks have been one of the, one of the sorriest organizations in professional sports what will he do differently where others have failed well first of all i live in philadelphia but i'm from baltimore and earl monroe is a baltimore bullet not a new york <laughs> not a oh, new you could he's a baltimore bullet you could have mike reardon okay you can keep mike reardon dave stallworth we'll keep earl the pearl uh, i mean when earl his career pearl. ended <laughs> Earl the Pearl is a Baltimore Bullet. Don't don't kid yourself. How many uh, titles did he win with the Bullets? <laughs> yeah, how many did he win with the Knicks? What, one. He one. one. <laughs> and he made the finals one other year. I think they, they made the finals in 71-72. They lost to the Lakers and then beat them again the following year. Uh, that was amazing. 60. He scored 60 with the Bullets. Did he ever score 60 with the Knicks? No, I don't think so. Do you remember his nickname in uh, in Baltimore when he was growing when he was first drafted? He was an Earl of the Pearl. Didn't they call him like Black Magic or something yeah, like that? Yeah, he was Black Magic, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I caught the tail end of his career the last five six years, uh, but he was a great player. And you're right. I, I think if you think of Earl Monroe at his apex. It was probably during his time with the Bullets because when he came to the Knicks, he had to integrate 
within an existing structure that included Walt Frazier and, uh, you know, Reed, DeBusher, Bradley. He had to basically not be the star of the team, but, you know, one of the cogs in the wheel, an important cog. But we never saw the Earl of the Pearl that you saw in Baltimore. Yeah. Will there ever? Well, wait a second. Lord Let's continue this conversation for a second. You know, somebody was asking me about, you know, will people go to the Knicks? Nobody wants to go to the Knicks. And I said that, look, when, when the Knicks were great, Walt Frazier was probably the most famous basketball player in the nation. And Walt Frazier, I mean, I loved Clyde, but he wouldn't be on anybody's list of the top 30 players of all time. If, you, if he's on another franchise, if you put him in Chicago or Phoenix, he doesn't crack the top 50 of all time list? Of course, right. But, oh, but, a New York Nick, but as a New York Nick, he owned the country. He was, I mean, he was, he was a really incredible. Well, uh, as a personality, really the first real personality in, in basketball. Go back and look at game seven of the 1970 NBA finals. And uh, so much has been written about Willis Reed coming out of the tunnel and hitting the first two jump shots. Uh, but that game seven was a Clyde Frazier production. I mean, he that, that might have been the most spectacular game of his career. Yeah, but I think you got the year wrong. No, 69-70. 69, right. Because in 69, the Jets beat the Colts, which they never should have done. The Mets beat the Orioles, which was like a God miracle. Mm -hmm. And then the Knicks beat the Bullets in the uh, in the finals before they got to, in the semifinals. So we lost to three New York teams that year. Geez, if only you had had a hockey team, because that same year, the New York That's Rangers right. uh, had the best team. And, and I, I was seven years old at the time. The Rangers had the best team in the National Hockey League in the 69-70 season until Brad Park broke his ankle. And, and then the wheels came off, and he came back, I guess, in time for the playoffs, but they lost to the Bruins. If there was like a Baltimore NHL franchise, that just would have been too perfect, and maybe the Rangers would have had a Stanley Cup much earlier. Right, absolutely. No question about it. Um, I hadn't thought about that Baltimore connection, that thread going through all of the New York teams in the 1969 and 1970 seasons. Uh, but your bullets did end up getting revenge on the Knicks the following year. And I remember that game vividly. It was the 70-71 series. The Bullets won in seven games. I think they ended up getting swept by the Milwaukee Bucks in the finals. But I remember that game seven at Madison Square Garden, Bill Bradley had a, a chance to, you know, win the game from this or tie or to win the game with a corner jumper. And I think Jack Marin or, or, or uh, Wes Unseld got a piece of it and the ball, you know, fell short of the net, didn't come close. The Bullets win on the Knicks home court and the Knicks shockingly uh, get eliminated at home. And it was the only year in that four year period in which they didn't make a sing didn't make the NBA finals. Wow. So and I, I actually had a long conversation with Wes Unsell when he was in his prime, really one of the nicest guys you've ever met in sports. And the amazing thing about Wes as a center, I mean, I think he's listed at 6'9". He was 6'7". And he played against Kareem and, and, and all these really, you know, Will Chamberlain. At 6'7", of course, he was also 6'7 wide. So 
So that that helped. But he he was such a nice, nice man. I remember those outlet passes, the patented West Unseld, you know, outlet pass. I think he might have been the best in uh, the NBA at doing that. And he was a, an extraordinary rebounder. Those are some great teams you had. Uh, like Hayes, Unseld, Monroe. How do you not end up with an NBA championship out of that? Well, I mean, my, my two favorite NBA seasons were the two back-to-back finals between the Bullets and the Seattle Supersonics. Do you remember those? Oh, sure, sure. That was with uh, Gus Williams and Lonnie Shelton and, yeah, the, the mid to late 70s teams. I forgot that the, that the Bullets uh, made one or, or, or both of those NBA finals. Who was on the team back then? I, I, I don't distinctly West, remember. Well, Wes was on the team and Ansel was on the team. And Paul Silas was on the Seattle team, and uh, uh, World Be Free was on Seattle. Okay. Jack Sigma. Oh, rebounding machine. The, the Bullets won one, and then Seattle won one. That was just a great back-to-back uh, series. I think the Bullets were actually in Washington by then. But really, they were never in Washington. They were in, I don't know if you know where Largo is. They were at the Cap Center in Largo, Maryland. Just, yeah, I remember that for a time. What prompted the uh, the bullets to depart Baltimore for uh, the capital? I, I don't know. That's a good question. But you know, the bullets played in the Civic Center, bought an arena that really was wasn't. Yeah. Wasn't yeah, but Baltimore Baltimore has such a rich sports history. I mean, right, right. Didn't Babe Ruth grow up in Baltimore? Or am I? Do I have my facts wrong? No, Babe, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth grew up in Baltimore. His father's store was where Camden Yards is today. Oh, wow. Uh, another Baltimore sports legend, remember George Young? He was the general, longtime general manager of the New York football giants. Uh, and he was a Baltimore you know, high school coaching legend. Do you remember him back in the day? Uh, it's a little before my time, I think. Wait a second, 30, 50? Yeah. Uh, okay, my okay. Father, I'll my father went to the greatest game ever played against the Giants in 50, 58, 59. Okay. Yeah, I remember. I, I, I don't remember that game, but that's certainly one of the great games in NFL history. So let's let's go back full circle to Leon, Leon Rose. Um, what do you think he's going to be able to bring um, to the Knicks that could elevate them. I mean, obviously, he's got the relationships with the players, but he's going to have to make talent evaluations, uh, draft players, basically assess where players fit in uh, relative to the salary cap. I mean, this is not just simply bringing a big three to New York like LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. What will he be able to do, and how soon do you think he'll be successful doing it? I think people will want to go with the Knicks with Leon as the president. And I mean, they'll know that Leon is close to a number of people, including uh, John Calipari and the uh, World Wide West, if you know who that is. And people will, these players will want to go to the Knicks, one, because they'll know that uh, who, will have, uh, who they can trust, who they can believe, and that Leon, Leon will get the job done. Uh, I must have missed something, Alan, but did... Um, I may even become a Knicks fan. <laughs> I, 
I might have missed something along the way, Alan, but uh, did, did Leon also become the owner of the New York Knicks? Because the one factor that has dissuaded and disincentivized players from coming to New York has been the personality of their owner, uh, James Dolan. The hockey side is run very competently, but his involvement on the basketball side has been a problem over the years and has not only driven away team executives, but uh, players don't want to come to New York. Why will that change? No matter how persuasive Leon Rose is, James Dolan is still the owner of the franchise. How will he manage that relationship? He'll manage. Leon is, is a people person. And and he has charm, and he, he knows how uh, how to talk with people, how to essentially get them to trust him, and that's why Dolan brought Leon in because Dolan knew that that you know he had, he had this kind of poisonous personality, and he needed somebody like Leon to essentially become the focal point of the Knicks, and and Leon will, you'll see. Okay. Do I mean, you they think got a long James? Way to go. They got a long way to go. That's for sure. Well, they're not playing games. So, on the positive side of the ledger, they haven't lost any games since he's been hired. Uh, but do you really think James Dolan is is that self-aware that he realized he needs to hire somebody like Dolan? I'm sorry, like like Leon Rose, given his own reputation around basketball. I, I don't give him that much credit for being self-aware. It's the only reason why you would hire Leon to do this. I mean, I think it was an it was a interesting choice, and the only reason to hire Leon is because of Leon's connections with with uh, Calipari and Wes and and a whole group of players. I mean, you have to understand when when Leon was an agent, the players that he became their you know the agent of were good people, you know so. You know that's what Leon's about is is finding not just talented people but good people, and and that's what you'll see in the coming years. Uh, will he hire a basketball like a, a a basketball general manager? I mean, he's not a general manager. He's the, going to be the team president. Will he be an, more of an overseer and let people do their jobs, or will he be he essentially become the de facto general manager? I think he'll become the de facto general manager. He won't become the coach. Okay. But he'll become the de facto general manager. Leon wanted to be a professional basketball player. You have to understand that. Leon lived and breathed basketball. I'll tell you a Leon story, right? You ready? Yep. So we had this big case in Guam. Leon and I would fly 27 hours to get to Guam. So we get to we get to Guam and and we're staying in a resort on the island of Guam and there's a basketball court. So we go to the basketball court and Leon says, "Let's play one on one." I am a mediocre basketball player. Leon, as someone famously said, could shoot in a hurricane. So we play one on one, full court. And I beat Leon. I'm bigger than him. And I beat him the first game, right? I should have walked off the court and said, that's it. We're never going to play again. I'm the champion. <laughs> but, but as soon as, as soon as I got the last winning point, Leon goes, we're playing two out of three. And, of course, he killed me the next two games. But 
Well, hopefully he'll bring that level of competitiveness to the Knicks because uh, uh, they've just been a walking disaster for the last uh, you know 20 years, ever since uh, Van Gundy left the organization. So I don't think we have too much choice here. This is an outside-the-box uh, choice for the New York Knicks, but given his prominence in the world of basketball, uh, maybe it takes someone with his connections and his level of stature around the game to be able to turn things around. Uh, I want to talk about another friend of yours who also happens to be a friend of mine, uh, 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 Michael McCann, the uh, esteemed sports law analyst for Sports Illustrated. You gave Michael his big break. Uh, how, did you how did you end up meeting Michael? I invented Michael McCann. <laughs> Does he owe you royalties? Are you getting a, yeah, are you getting a percentage of his check? He is, as a, I call him, you know, the king of all media, like Howard Stern. And I invented <laughs> Michael McCann. So I take full credit, even though he's, he's you know, he's grown far beyond, uh, far beyond what anybody dreamed. But, you know, he, when I had the Claret case, he called me up one day and said, can I help you on the Claret case? I won't charge you anything. I just want to be involved. And and I said sure, and he uh, you know did a did some work, did some research, uh, provided some input into into the uh, uh, briefs that we're writing. Came to the oral argument, and uh, we were friend. We've become friends ever since. The Michael, in in my estimation, is the best writer that I've seen covering any aspect of sports. Uh, did that translate to the uh, research and brief writing? Was he was he helping out on any of the briefs or legal memoranda or appellate papers? Yeah, he helped us. You know, he would review the stuff we were writing and, and offered his input. And it was, of course, you know, right on point and invaluable. And then when he when he's looking for a job, and he got an offer, or he got an interview down in Mississippi. He asked me for a recommendation, which I was certainly glad to give. And uh, he took off from there. And then when he was down there, uh, I wanted to help him out, and so uh, I came down there to speak, and and uh, I spoke about bioethics and about sports. And you could just, I mean, I mean, you've you've been around Michael and and his students. You know, they. They love him. They he's love like the pie. He's like the Pied Piper. Wherever he goes, I had the I had the uh, interesting experience of going to the uh, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference uh, several years. I went I went three years in a row. But one of the years, Michael was on a panel about college sports, and following the conclusion of the panel, uh, there was just a succession or a conga line of like law students and wannabe law students that just waited in line so they could have a chance to speak with Michael. And he patiently gave all of his time to every single last one of them. So I call him the Pied Piper of sports law. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a special person. There's no question about it. And if you invented Michael, uh, I guess you kind of helped invent me a little bit. So, um, Alan, thank you very much. I wish you like continued health, and I hope you're able to endure this temporary pause in our in our business and personal lives and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing you in person very soon all right you take care dan 
That wraps up another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the sports law podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and like the content that we're providing, please, if you don't mind, give us a a good review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Google Play, SoundCloud, or any of the other platforms in which you receive the best-in-class podcasting content. Uh, I would personally appreciate it. It helps us build the audience, and we will be back soon with another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Until next time, case dismissed and the jury is excused. Uh, Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Wallach Legal, LLC, the country's first sports betting-focused law firm representing clients all across this great land in matters relating to gaming law, sports wagering law, sports law, and yes, even litigation, uh, including appellate litigation. If you have any questions about the show or suggestions for future topics or guests, or if you just want to be a guest yourself, or you're looking to hire a lawyer, you can reach me in either of two ways. First, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Wallach Legal. That's at W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-E-G-A-L. That's all uppercase, although I don't think it makes a difference. Or you can send me an email at the following email address. WallachLegal at gmail.com. That's W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-E-G-A-L at gmail.com. Thank you.